all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to investors, entrepreneurs, and founders about all things value creation and startups. Today, I am with a celebrity. Her name is Melissa Widener, and she is the CEO of Lighter Capital, which is the leading provider of revenue-based financing loans for tech startups. If you are in the startup ecosystem, you have certainly heard of Lighter Capital. Uh, since 2012, they've made about $100 million worth of growth capital um, in over 250 companies. And Melissa, how are you doing? Great. We, ha- I just have to say that we've invested over 300 into over a thousand rounds of financing in 500 companies. So sorry if we didn't get you the updated info there. <laughs> yeah. You got, you got to update your LinkedIn. We hit, we hit our thousand, we hit our thousand financing round this year. So I can't let that go. No, that's a, that's a great metric. So w- what's the deal? You don't sound Australian. I know. Sorry about that. Um, I'm actually American. I, I split my time now between here and Australia. Okay. Lighter's Lighter's a U.S.-based company, but we launched in Australia about a year and a half ago. I didn't realize it was that new. Well, Lighter's been in the U.S. since 2010, but in Australia about a year and a half ago. Got it. Got it. And how is the the tech scene in in Australia? Well, it has grown a, a lot. I moved there in 2009 and there wasn't much happening. But there is a lot happening now. There's a lot of big funds and the ecosystem has grown um, tremendously in the last decade. So a lot going on. Some good, you know, Atlassian is Australian, Canvas Australian, some, some really good companies have come out of there. I couldn't think of a more inconvenient place to share time. Than Australia. No, no, it's not bad. Australia is not bad at all compared to, um, you know, Europe or really anywhere else. So the West Coast of the US for part of the year and Australia is only a five hour difference. So it just means I get up early. Okay, it's not that bad. No, it's not that bad. 6am is 11am for a big chunk of the year. So tell me, Melissa, tell me a little bit about yourself up to lighter capital. Love to hear kind of about your backstory. Yeah, so I am an entrepreneur. I still think of myself as an entrepreneur. I founded a couple of companies, um, had two um, really successful exits uh, for companies. Um, one was in a manufacturing space. One was an enterprise software company. And then I went into angel investing in venture, and I was in venture for really the better part of two decades. Most recently, I was running National Australia Bank's Venture Fund, and um, we invested along with Silicon Valley Bank into Lighter Capital in 2018. Lighter Capital was a Seattle-based company that was founded in 2010, and I went onto their board. And in 2020, I became Lighter CEO, so I've gone back into doing um operating work, which is much harder than being a VC. VC is a pretty cushy job. It's a very cushy job. I know. And VCs don't like to say that, but any VC that's actually done both. Yeah. No, we'll we'll, we'll say that. Yeah. I spent about half my day spinning in my chair. 
<laughs> I, I know I looked at your background and you've done you've done the hard yards. I was looking at the, the company that you ran and sold, and that would be not easy by any stretch. So no, that, that, com- that company was a nightmare. I still yeah. wake up screaming. So. <laughs> so how did you come across becoming a, a software executive? I mean, it's kind of just started, you know, Melissa, CEO. I mean, how did you, how did that come to fruition yeah. specifically in manufacturing? Well, so I, I ran a manufacturing company and then when we sold that, had a good exit, returned 15X um, to the investor. And, and that just came about because, a friend of mine's, I was very entrepreneurial in college, put myself through college, had businesses, and a friend of mine's father hired me to run a company that he wanted to acquire and turn around. So that's what I, that's how that came about. And then I went to business school. Um, I went to business school at Stanford and I, I learned about technology companies and that how they get much bigger multiples than, you know, low tech companies and, and had this opportunity to, um, start a company to automate procurement for large, um, businesses when the internet was fairly new. So, and that came about because my co-founder, who was the CTO, had created this product for internal use at Microsoft. And it saved Microsoft like $35 million a year by automating their procurement, but it was something they created for internal use, not to sell externally. So it was pretty obvious that there was a business there. I was um, doing a summer internship at Goldman Sachs at the time and learning about tech companies and, and decided to, um, you know, see if we could make a go of that one. And we created a company called Seven Software. We're pretty quickly into a very hot space. And um, we were acquired by Concur Technologies when Concur was still fairly young. So, I mean, that's pretty incredible. Like just right out of college, you got recruited to run a manufacturing company. I mean, clearly like I mean, do you have good parents? Like what, how, how did you become so dynamic and intelligent to be able to like have someone to throw you the keys? <laughs> I think if people have really good parents and solid backgrounds, they don't become entrepreneurs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> that could be. Not that my parents aren't good, but yeah. So I think, um, I think, yeah, I had a business in college. I was putting myself through college and um, a friend of mine um, who she probably still managed not to work a day in her life up to this point, but her, her dad saw what I was doing and was pretty impressed. And I don't know, said he had an opportunity to, to buy this company. It was a turnaround. It wasn't, you know, a lot of money for him at the time. And he, he asked if I would come in and, and run it. So and, he and did it. That was the it, hardest thing I ever did. That's why when you talk about your nightmares for the company you ran, I can, I can completely relate. Yeah. So. Especially, especially manufacturing. I mean, that's just, I mean, you didn't know about software yet, but I mean, knowing about scale and stuff, I mean, that must've been really, really difficult. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, it was interesting. It was actually not many people asked me about that company. So I'm glad you did, because I actually think what I did in that company is probably better training than even the software company, even though, you know, what we do at Lighter is focused almost exclusively on technology companies. But, um, that company, we sold products, we sold industrial supply products, mainly to schools, um, hospitals, you know, all these things that happen at night in a building. Those are the things that we sold. Mm-hmm. So still to this day, when I walk into a building, I'll be assessing, you know, what, you know, what would be the, um, you know, the average revenue for that customer. But um, it was a great business because companies bought from us, then they ran out and then they bought more. And then they mm-hmm. ran out and they bought more, but it was, you had to really figure out how to differentiate your product because at the end of the day, you know, 
the products were pretty similar. And the way we differentiated was on service. So you had to be creative and figure out how to differentiate on service. And um, I think that was really good training. You know, when you think about right now, I'm in the business of selling money. Um, money is money. So how do we differentiate Lighter Capital's offering? And it has to do with what else we're bringing to the customer and why would they want to do business with us, especially good customers have a lot of choices. The same thing in venture, right? Oh, yeah. The companies no. have a lot of choices. Lots and lots of choices. Um, and it is a commodity. You know, it's a commodity with a brand. So, you know, you just really have to differentiate yourself as a, uh, as people. So is that manufacturing company did that sell through distributors or was that direct to, direct to your end direct customer? Direct to customers. Yeah. Yeah. So that must have been pretty differentiated as well. Right. I mean, to kind of go in and you know, be able to sell it directly as opposed to through a distribution? Well, we had a lot of products. So manufacturing makes it sound more glamorous than it is. So we manufactured cleaning chemicals mm-hmm. and we also white labeled some and we sold equipment and we sold, um, you know, our, our, the, 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 our buyer was usually the head of procurement for a school district and our, the decision maker would be the head, the head of janitorial services. Okay, great. And then when you went into, you know, you basically took a product that was built internally for Microsoft and you saw an opportunity to productize it through many different industries. Was that blue ocean for you or was there, you know, was it starting to get kind of competitive? How did you think about that? Well, we were focused on um, companies that were, it was large enterprises and focused on companies that were using SAP as their ERP system because we had, we had built the integrations into SAP and it was a product that was built at Microsoft in conjunction with their SAP rollout. So that it, it didn't narrow it that much because a lot of large enterprises were using SAP, but that was, that was our focus. But in terms of Blue Ocean, um, you know, most companies had an automated procurement because the technology wasn't around to automate procurement. I mean, this was, you know, where you would take a, um, you take a, purchase order, you fill it out, you get your, you know, get your boss to sign it and then fax it. So this is when the, the internet and the intranet was fairly new. Okay. And being yeah. able to automate those processes and, you know, the, the math that, that Microsoft did was it used to cost us $150 every time we did that, just in terms of people's time, we've got that down to $2 and I can't remember the number of over this many number of POs, they couldn't automate all of them, but they could automate 80 to 90% of them. They were saving like $35 million a year. Yeah, that's meaningful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then and then what happened? We had we had technology and we had product, and we had customers, and then a couple really big companies came into the space. Um, Ariba is one yeah. that you may have heard of, mm-hmm. and Commerce One was another. So all of a sudden, we were in a very hot space, but we had product and credibility and customers. So we had um, um, a lot of acquisition offers. It was a good time, and I became a VC after that. And, you know, when you sell two companies for a really good return to the investor, you know, you think you're pretty smart, you think you know something. And I look back on it and I really didn't know a lot. And I found out how little I knew when I um, started funding as a VC, um, really people a lot smarter than I am, a lot who worked a lot harder and a lot longer, maybe didn't have those exits because they didn't have that luck of timing. Yeah. So what uh, was, was, was the software company Seven Software, was that venture backed? We were we were backed by angels in a small small sort of venture ish, mm-hmm. and then we were right about to do what would be called our Series A today. I mean, in, in those days, you know, a little bit different, but it would be called our Series A today, and that's when we were acquired. Got it, got it. And so, and, and in fact, s- the, the acquisition came from an 
introduction that we were we were pitching a venture fund who introduced us to you know the, our acquirer got it now are you um then you stepped into the dark side yeah that was the dark side but now i'm out of the dark side yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time on the dark side that's what i always called it yeah yeah so tell me so tell me about your experience going from operator to, to vc and you know kind of what does that you know what, what was that experience um what were some of the learnings there yeah, I was just talking to actually a, a VC about this yesterday at a Silicon Valley Bank conference. He's been in he's been in venture. He was at NEA and um, he's been in venture for I don't know thirty some years now. But we were talking about how you know what is the real value that venture capitalists bring. And I remember when I became a venture capitalist, I was young, and you know trying to bring value to your companies, especially if you've been an operator. You know, you know what can I do? How can I help? What else can I get in? I think I kept trying to you know fill some kind of operating role. But I, I would say in my um, you know now couple decades of watching this. I think the the biggest value they bring is the money, right? And if you ask a lot of entrepreneurs what they got from their VCs and what value they brought, it's mostly, well, they wrote us a check. Um, hopefully they don't do any harm, which I've seen a lot of harm done, especially in down markets. I became a VC in 2000 and, um, you know, VCs have been really nice the last decade because we've been on a, been on a long run. But, um, you know, the second thing is you hope they don't do harm. And that happens when, um, especially when you've got VCs that have uh, differing exit strategies. You know, the poor entrepreneur is sitting there with the hardest job in the world um, anyway, and then just getting, you know, pulled in different directions and having to listen to different people because they're reliant on future rounds of financing. Those people are those people have board seats and have some control. But um, to your question, I think the... I've concluded that really the other than the money, what a, a good venture capitalist brings is connections to an entrepreneur. I mean, they have a great vantage point. They see how different companies are run um, so they can be helpful there, but, but really it's, it's connections. And I have a great venture capitalist at lighter capital, um, Eric Benson from Voyager, and he's extremely connected. Anytime I need something, he can get me with a warm intro right to wherever I need to be, whether it's customer or partnership. And that's valuable. I mean, I could eventually get there, but he saves, he saves me a lot of time. Yeah. And how does one really quantify the ability of their network when talking to a founder for the first time? And we all say we have great networks. Yeah. And, and a lot of VCs do. Um, so I look, if you're a founder and you have a choice, everybody says, choose your VCs carefully. And the reality is, you know, very small percentage of, of uh, growth tech companies ever get funding by VCs, you know, they fund like 1% of companies, right? And then most of the ones that do get funded didn't have a choice. They probably only didn't get a lot of term sheets. You know, we only hear about the ones where, you know, I had 10 VCs chasing me, but that that's very much the exception to the rule. So, um, if you have a choice, and hopefully you do when you're when you're deciding to go out for a venture round, um, talk to other entrepreneurs, not the ones you know the VCs have told you to talk to, but talk to all of the ones that the that the VC you're going to work with has worked with in the past to get a really good idea on how that VC will work with you and how they'll support you. Yeah, and I think alignment of interest, I mean, is really key and return profile because um, you know when you start stacking the capital, <laughs> you know, it, and, get, it gets real messy. And very much, especially in down markets where you've got, um, you know, different liquidation preferences and yeah, it gets very, very messy. You know, we haven't had that really for the last decade. 
I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. Oh, you did? Um, well, okay. yeah. Well, I just, it's, it's just like, I, it's, it was like this term I hear when people just get crushed and it's, I've never taken VC money before, right? Dot, 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 you know, and then you can just like fill in the blank, you know, and I've got <laughs> fucked, right? And yeah, you know, and like, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what was like, is, is the, is the math not there? Do you feel like that the founder doesn't understand how venture capitalists make money and like what they need to, to do to sign on and like what blocking rights they may or may not have, um, you know, or, I mean, at the end of the day, they are taking minority positions. They don't control the budget The you know, the founder controls the budget and, but they have control over a lot of very fundamental things, like whether or not you can sell your company, um, if you can take another round of financing. Right. So, Right. Right. Exactly. And, you know, when you take when you take the money, you know, you you're assumed that you need to take a lot more money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. And-, yeah. And, and it's in and, and look, VCs aren't bad people. Um, they they're you just have to really understand what the model is. And the model is they've got to. They've got to try and, and this is most, there's a few exceptions where they say we're not going for big winners, but you know, for the most part, you know, you're shooting for the fences or, uh, and you've got to, um, push all of your companies to become really large companies with the hope that, you know, one or two of them will actually achieve that. So in the process of doing that, you're putting a lot of risk and liquidation preferences onto companies that can't necessarily absorb that kind of risk with those kind of liquidation preferences and, and grow into the value that they would need to produce a return. Mm-hmm. But the sad thing is a lot of those companies would be really good companies. Otherwise, you know, no, there's nothing wrong with growing at 20 or 30% a year and being profitable or close to profitable. And those are the types of companies that lighter backs all day long. And a lot of our companies go on to get venture financing, but a lot don't. Yeah. And they have a choice at least, right. Where they can actually have to choose their own, their own destiny. Like, exactly. Right. So yeah. what kind of things did you see from a down market, like in a down market, um, back in, you know, in the 2001, 2000, you know, 2002, you know, timeframe as a VC? Because I think it's timely, right? I mean, right now we're in a situation where I don't know we're there yet, but, you know, there's definitely a, a pullback on financing. Mm-hmm. And so is history going to repeat itself? What kind of stuff did you see back then? Yeah. So there's a couple questions there, whether history is going to repeat itself. We have, um, I guess, more dry powder, VC dry powder than we ever have had in the history of the world. So potentially that will soften some of what could happen in a down market because there's more money out there where it really did just dry up mm-hmm. in, in 2000. Yeah, it's gone. We're right. investing so quickly. Right. These were 99 and 2000 vintage funds that were just putting all their money out there. And then when it came time to, you know, for their companies to get subsequent rounds. There wasn't a lot out there and, and most VCs pulled back and were, were funding their own companies. Um, so that's one of the things is that they weren't, you know, they were holding their dry powder for their existing portfolios. So um, that made it difficult to get uh, future rounds. And then, you know, you saw a lot of multiple liquidation preferences, um, stacked liquidation preferences, but that was pretty normal anyway. It's mm-hmm. just stacked isn't a problem as long as you go through the liquidation preferences. Mm-hmm. But um, and what I saw a lot of, and hopefully this won't repeat itself, was a change out of the founder happened. I, I, so I, someone must have done some research on it. But I think if you look at companies that were funded in 99 or 2000, 
it has to be a majority of founders were changed out, mm-hmm. so, which um, really in hindsight doesn't make sense. I mean, the founders were changed out because the companies weren't doing well. They weren't able to raise money, but you know, the economy was terrible. It was impossible to raise money. So what boards do is say, okay, we got to get in a new CEO. And, and when you think about, when you think about um, who is going to be best to take the company through, you know, really difficult time and who's going to stick with that company when it's just horrible and so hard to do, it's going to be the founder. It's like taking the parent. It's like you got a problem child and removing the parent and putting in another parent, you know, that, that, that new parent's not going to have that much of an interest in raising that problem child. It's going to be really difficult. You know, mm-hmm. they have the whole ego on the line. So I think we should see, Hopefully we'll see, um, if we are in a long-term downturn now, we won't see as much changing out of the founder because yeah. they're usually the best ones to, you know, to take the companies through the tough times. Right. The companies aren't like valuable enough, right. To, you know, try to recapitalize them with a new person. The risk is too high. I mean, it takes a year to know if the person's any good anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But that happened so often in that 2001, 2002 timeframe. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. So do you do you feel like there's going to be um a lot more kind of like extension rounds with VCs versus yes. um yeah. Yeah, at least right now because nobody wants to do a down round. And I think we we've seen um a lot of demand for our um product which is non-dilutive capital. We don't we don't um we don't take any equity, we don't take any control. And what we're seeing more in today's market is companies that are already VC backed and doing well because they don't want to do that next round. They maybe did a round last year and at, you know, crazy valuations. I think we all agree that valuations were, um, have been pretty crazy in the last few years. So, you know, what if you raised it at 200 times ARR, you know, which some companies did a year ago and then you did pretty well. You know, you're probably heading to a down or a flat round. Yeah. This, this year. So if you want to avoid that, which most companies and most venture firms want to avoid a, a down round, then this is a good alternative. Yeah. And yeah, that's where Lighter definitely steps in. And do you ever feel like you're in a situation? Because I'm an LP of a, an emerging venture or venture debt fund here in Arizona. Oh, okay. And, yeah. And um, it's called Prospect Fund. And they... um you know, they go out to market and, you know, some of the, you know, challenges that they have is that when they go out to companies that want it, investors, you know, just want to put more money in. Right. And, Mm. you know, it gives them an opportunity to do that. And it could be more dilutive to founders at that point. I mean, as opposed to, to that, I mean, like, do you see that as a, at lighter, like against internal investors? Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's, um, you know, we've been doing at this since 2010. And like I said, we've done, you know, a thousand financing rounds. There's a lot of financing rounds we didn't do where we would have really liked to f- fund the company, but their invest internal investors decided to fund it or they company got equity financing. That's probably one of the, you know, the biggest reasons that we lose a deal. Yeah. And it shouldn't, I mean, ideally, it's like, I feel like there's people say, okay, venture debt's expensive because they look at the interest rate, you know, mm-hmm. and they look at the warrant. But in hindsight, if you take a look at what the equity value is on an EV basis, I mean, we're ta- we're having two different conversations. Yeah, there's, I mean, you should always, always, always take debt over equity. If you have, let's say you can get a million in debt and a million in equity, you should always take 
that debt unless the debt's going to be really onerous to service. Like if it's going to put your company at risk because there's just some, you know, terrible terms. I mean, we're revenue-based financing. So we collect a percentage of your revenue, your cash collected revenue until it's paid off within a three-year period. So companies should always be able to service that loan because if they have, you know, if they're, um, if their revenues really drop during that period, they don't have this big onerous debt burden that they're dealing with. Yeah, you, so, it, so you it, it, yeah. it drops. Your, yeah, your 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 take drops with the revenue, so you're kind yeah, of. And it's it's usually sub ten percent, so it's it's not a big chunk of of the revenue. And then the other reason you should take equity over debt. Um, debt over equity. Well, another another reason like like oh got it. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't. So one is if the debt's gonna be onerous to service, you know, and, and put your company at risk. And the second is if um if you're going to get a lot of value from that equity provider because you're giving them a chunk of your company. I mean, Lighter doesn't take any equity, but you're we don't we don't take um warrants on any deals under two million dollars. We'll take a little if it's over two million, but we um you know, we don't take any control, but if you're getting a lot of help from that VC or from that equity provider that, and the help is enough that it's going to increase the value by, you know, the amount that you're giving them of your company, you know, which is, you know, 10, 20 or 30%, then it could also make sense. Yeah. When founders ask what a uh, value I can add besides capital, I said zero. Like, I mean, I, 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 pro- I provide, I provide negative value actually. Like, you don't actually say that, do you? I, I do. think you provide a lot of value. You can get them on your podcast. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you, I mean, I'm sure you provide value, whether it's worth 10 or 20% of their company. Maybe that's a, that's a, um, you know. <laughs> yeah. But you know, at the end of the day, it's a market, right? You know, like it's risk capital and, you know, there's options out there. There's options that they used to not be. Right. And I still, I still think people are still very weirded out by debt. Like when you take, yeah, it's getting better, but it has, there's like this negative connotation. It's like, no, actually for the early stage investors, it's great. Cause if you look at their return, when you take it to an exit, they will do better if they didn't take more dilution. Right. How how do you underwrite, uh, your, uh, your, your RBF lines? Well, we look at, it's really about being able to predict the revenue. So we're taking in the data from their bank account and their accounting platform and their billing, and we're trying to predict what we think their revenue will be. Um, and we're, we are, because we're not, um, you know, this isn't a typical loan where you have a fixed interest rate, but, you know, we're, we're depending on the risk. We are, we are usually aiming for something between mid-teens to mid-20s. You know, for a really risky deal, we'd be aiming for mid-20s. But the interest rate isn't in the mid-20s. It's just we're aiming for, okay, by the time our loan is paid back, hopefully that's the IRR mm-hmm. we received. Because we make our money based on the spread. We have our our capital comes from a warehouse facility through Credit Suisse. And we pay a fixed amount for that. They don't care what our companies are doing in terms of whether the revenue is going up or down. We have to pay them a fixed amount. So the way that we make our money is the spread. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's um, and that's nice. I mean, it's just one institution. There's one neck to choke there. Yeah, I mean, we have a MES provider as well, but it's one facility. Mm-hmm. And what's the purpose of the MES facility? Well, the, the, it's one facility. It all sits in the same facility, but Got there's it. a, this is, um, and, and, and you can have what's called Unitronch where you only have one provider, but Credit Suisse in our case provides the senior, their senior in the capital stack. And then the MES sits, um, 
they're the junior provider. So if we do lose money, the MES gets wiped out first and then the senior gets What's wiped the, out next. Yeah, but what, what is the purpose of having both? It's just different risk profiles. So, um, you know, our cost on the MES money is more than double the cost on the senior. Like for the senior to so, lose so the, money. Yeah, so they're basically like the MES is almost like kind of like an equity position for you, right? Like, Well, I don't more, know. I it's, mean, more, it's more skin in the game, right? It's Well, yeah, sort of. But I mean, like we, you know, our our loss rates are really low. We have historical loss rates of under 2%. And we still have to provide the first 10% of capital, first 10% of loss rate for any any loan, right? So mm-hmm. how do you how, how do you get less than 2% loss rate on these? Or like, how early do you go? We go to 15,000 in MRR. Yeah, so how how are you able to get less than 2%? That's incredible for charge-offs. We probably don't take enough risk. That's what, that's what I'm saying to our underwriters. We need to take more risk. Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah. What's, I mean, what's, what's Silicon Valley Bank's write-off, do you know? Or charge-off? Well, it would be lower than that. Yeah, it had to be. Yeah, it would be lower than that. Yeah. Okay. Right. So it depends. I mean, in 2008 or nine, I mean, the, the former chief risk officer and chief credit officer and CFO of Silicon Valley Bank is on our board, on Lighter Capital's board. And I think in the 2008 or nine period, which was, you know, really bad, it went up to maybe four or 5% default rates. Oh, I don't okay, think gotcha. they've ever been above 10. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So how does the how does the team look like how do you run your deal team at at uh at lighter um we have an underwriting team so they're the ones that make the you know look at all the data and decide how we should price the loan um and we have our investment directors and they are the ones that are out working directly with the companies and what they're really there do is to find out how else we can help them, you know, what other things we can do to help the companies. We have a big community, you know, there's so much knowledge that sits um, with the customers that we funded. So we look at how can we share that knowledge among um, our, our customers. And you know, this, the CEO of a startup is probably the loneliest job in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we, you know, what we work on is getting these people together to share, share learnings. Got it. Great. So what's next? What's the next step? For Lighter? Yeah. For you, for Lighter, everything. Well, we launched in Australia a year and a half ago. So we're building out that market and that's really exciting. Um, there's, it's a small market, you know, much smaller than the U.S., but um, I, I don't know, I'm based there. So that's something that's pretty exciting. Um, looking at how we can expand uh, our, you know, who we lend to and how we lend. So, you know, we've had a, a fairly narrow box uh, since I think when Lighter first started, they did everything. And then in 2012, they really focused on B2B SaaS. And, and now we're seeing, you know, where else can we, how, where else can we expand? You know, so we're um, providing capitals to some tech services companies. I mean, it doesn't sound like a big stretch from B2B SaaS, but the underwriting is quite different. Um, doing some e-commerce companies. So looking at other places where you know, there's some similarities in how we underwrite and how we assess risks that we can, you know, provide capital to companies where that banks won't touch. Yeah. If your aggregate charge off rate is 2% and there's no reason why you can't take more risk. Yeah. That's what I tell. That's, that's what I say to our head of credit. <laughs> you, need you, know me, you need me in the room with you. <laughs> like clearly I got to drive this over the line. 
<laughs> you know what's interesting about running a lending company is you you think you're the CEO and you run it, but you don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have a compliance team, a credit team, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah it's so frustrating. I'd want to do every loan. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, all right, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on. A couple of quick can questions. What is your favorite book? Oh, 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 it depends. Oh, oh, this is this is a this is probably an easy one if we're not gonna go down the business book path. Do you want a business book or I want the first thing that came to your mind. Was it Harry Potter? Um gla- no, no, no. Um The Glass Castle. Okay. What's that one? It is written by Jeanette Wells, Jeanette Walls, and it's just a story of her life. I love it. Absolutely love that book. Read it three times. Okay. And then what about your best piece of business advice you ever gotten? Just, this was early and it probably wasn't said this way, but that it's just all about the team. Like I was told that very early and it's just, it's so true. I mean, it's a basic thing, but I remember somebody telling me that when I was a 23 year old CEO, mm-hmm. it is just all about the team. Yeah. Well, and it's worked for you. Think you're ever going to go back to operating or no? I'm operating now. Well, I mean, <laughs> operating like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I operate on a daily basis. Yeah, you're you're yeah. operating. Yeah, no, yeah. you're seriously operating. But I mean, like operating yeah. a, um, you know, a software company. This is a software fintech. <laughs> <laughs> I am operating now. You're a financial, just, you're a financial services company. Well, but we have, you know, we have a, I mean, a quarter of our people are technologists. Oh, that's so, cool. No, okay. no, this is a, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, this is, this is an operating role. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you again, Melissa. Everybody, thank thank you. you. Yeah, thank you for joining the Capital Stack. We have an episode every Tuesday where we talk to investors, founders, and entrepreneurs about all things value creation and startups. We drop a podcast every Tuesday. We're on all major platforms, Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. If you like it, please subscribe, tell a friend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.